Our reading for today is from Matthew 17. The Transfiguration. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was, transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way of the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Good, thank you, everyone. Good morning. It's good to see you all. If you want to open your Bibles back up at Matthew uh, chapter 17, that'll be great as we look at this wonderful story, the transfiguration of Jesus together. One of the uh, most liberating times in life for me is when I'm stood in a place like this, surveying the wonder of God's creation, white mountains all around filling the landscape. Not a person in sight and the freedom of the slopes before you. Now, for those of you who've been skiing before, I think you will know and appreciate that feeling of exhilaration when you are stood in that place. Well, I think for the Christian, life is full of a number of mountaintop moments like this. When Jesus is so real and it feels like you're almost on top of the world. But of course, these mountaintop moments are often preceded by and followed by more difficult moments in the valley of the shadow of death. When life just feels tough, right? When things come crashing in all around, when we experience times of confusion, times of doubt, times of discouragement, and even times of despair. And I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe this morning you're on the mountaintop and you're delighting in your heart in the goodness of Jesus and all in life as well. Maybe this morning you feel like you're right at the bottom of the valley. Maybe you're somewhere in between. You see, the Christian life is full of mountaintop moments and valley experiences. And as we come to Matthew chapter 17 this morning, this is one of the great mountain top moments in scripture. An experience of God's glory that will sustain the disciples for the long and the difficult valleys that lie ahead. And just like Peter, James and John, who Jesus led up to the mountain that day, we too need moments like this. 
when we pause for long enough in the presence of Jesus to examine his glory, to exalt his greatness, and to experience his grace in such a way that he will sustain us for whatever comes our way in life. You see, you'd be silly, wouldn't you, to visit a place like that, to stand in the Alps, to stand in that spot without staying there long enough to appreciate the view, to be absolutely stunned by what you see. And so often it is when we come to Jesus that we don't spend long enough in his presence, examining his glory, contemplating his character, marveling at his majesty in such a way that leaves us stunned, absolutely stunned by what a wonderful saviour and king Jesus is. So we're going to begin this morning by thinking firstly, as we examine his glory, have a look down at verse one and two. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. As you can see from the time link there at the beginning of verse 1, Matthew, who is the author of this gospel, quite clearly wants to link this event of the transfiguration with what happened six days before. And what did happen six days before? You remember where we were last week in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21? Well, Jesus spoke clearly for the first time about his impending death. And it left the disciples in a state of confusion. They just couldn't get their heads around it. The Messiah must suffer. The Messiah must die. And if that wasn't enough for the disciples to take in, then Jesus topped it off by calling them to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. It must have been a pretty overwhelming time, right, for the disciples and what they needed most in this, in this moment of confusion and concern was a fresh vision of God's glory. And that's exactly what Jesus gave them. As J.C. Ryle says so brilliantly in his commentary, hearts which have been saddened by a plain statement of Christ's suffering, that was last week, are now gladdened by a vision of Christ's glory. Saddened hearts become gladdened hearts you see this whole episode here has been orchestrated by jesus for the benefit of his disciples can you see that in verse one after six days jesus took with him peter james and john he led them up a high mountain jesus takes the initiative at every moment along the way as he leads them to the mountain top now the setting for this is important we're on a mountain We don't know exactly what mountain it is, but throughout God's word, mountains are are significant moments of God's revelation. Lots of important things happen up mountains, right, in God's word? Remember back to Moses in Exodus as he ascends Mount Sinai and God gives him the law. God reveals his good purposes for his people. And then Elijah, as he goes up to the top of Mount Carmel, And God shows himself to be the one true living God as he descends on that mountaintop in fire. 
And then, of course, most significantly, as the Lord Jesus ascended the Mount of Crucifixion, carrying his cross to die in our place. The greatest display of God's glory and of God's greatness and of God's grace. And so Jesus leads Peter, James and John to the top of this mountain for this moment of unveiling where his glory was transfigured before them. There he was transfigured. Verse 2, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. It's like the curtain of Jesus' humanity is just pulled back for a moment, allowing the full majesty of the divine Son just to peep through and be revealed to the disciples. And that's how Peter recalls it, look. In his second letter to Peter, chapter 1, verse 16, as Peter recalls this moment, so he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were there, we saw This incredible unveiling as the majesty of the divine son peeped through before us. Now you may not have been led to the top of a physical mountain to see a physically transformed saviour in the flesh like Peter, James and John. Maybe you don't hear an audible voice from heaven declaring him to be the divine son as they did in verse 5. But God... In his kindness, again and again, takes us to places in God's word where we can see and savour Jesus for who he really is. You see, the question for us, I think, is this. Will you pause for long enough in this frantic, fast-paced world in which we live? Will you pause for long enough to examine his glory? Will you pause for long enough in God's word that he might lead you to the mountaintop and give you a fresh vision of Jesus and a fresh perspective on life that will sustain you for whatever comes next? Firstly, then, we examine his glory, or do we? Do we pause long enough to examine his glory? And secondly, to exalt his Greatness. Have a look at verse 3 with me. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now the presence of these two famous Old Testament characters should encourage us in at least two ways. Firstly, it is a very visible reminder to us that physical death is not the end. Moses, who died 1,480 years previously is now in the presence of Jesus in his resurrection body. And Elijah, who didn't die, but was taken in in a chariot and a whirlwind of fire up to heaven, is still alive 900 years later in the presence of Jesus. You see, these two characters serve as a reminder to us that those who have left this world trusting in the Lord Jesus are not residing in the ground somewhere in a grave but are consciously with their Lord and Saviour in glory, in communion with him. What a wonderful encouragement that is, isn't it? And then secondly, Moses here who represents the law and Elijah who represents the prophets, 
The law and the prophets together are both pointing towards the greatness of Jesus. Everything points towards him. As Jesus himself says, look in Luke chapter 24, the end of Luke's gospel is, as the resurrected Jesus appears to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, as they walk away from Jerusalem, downcast, thinking it's all over. Look what Jesus says to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Moses and Elijah, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. It all points to Jesus. As one commentator said, when you open up the Bible, you will find blood on every page. Because it all points to Christ and his saving work at the cross on our behalf. And unsurprisingly, Peter's pretty flustered by this whole experience, isn't he? Have a look in verse 4, as Peter probably fumbles to get to get his words out. He says to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, Peter, of course, is right, isn't he? It was good for them to be there. In fact, there is no better place to be than in the presence of Jesus. But what Peter says next highlights two mistakes in his thinking. You see it there in the second half of the verse. I will put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Firstly, he's putting Jesus on a level playing field with Moses and Elijah. And just as we saw last week, it doesn't work. The Lord Jesus is supremely above and beyond all others. We cannot put him on the same shelf as these great heroes of faith from the Old Testament. He is the divine son. He is above and beyond all others. But secondly, this is his second mistake, I think. It's not yet time to settle down fully in his glorious presence. You see, Peter's motives were probably right. He wanted to stay in this moment with Jesus. He wanted to make permanent this experience by building shelters, residences, if you like, for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. But as Jesus had made clear just six days before, the time for resting permanently in God's presence had not yet come. You see, Jesus couldn't stay on that mountain with his disciples because he had another mountain to climb. He had to come down from that moment to ascend the mount of crucifixion for us. As we sing in that majestic hymn, on the mount of crucifixion, fountains opened deep and wide through the floodgates of God's mercy, flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love, like mighty rivers, poured incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. The cross must come first. Otherwise, there would be no crown. 
And Peter still hadn't quite grasped this in his head. I wonder, have we? Do we acknowledge that there is work to be done? There is a cross to bear before we settle down for all eternity with the Lord Jesus in heaven. Peter's thinking was slightly mistaken. And so do you see what happens next in verse 5? Well, the Father himself descends, doesn't he? The Father descends to correct Peter's misguided thinking. Look what he says. While he was still speaking, while Peter's still speaking, it's like like the Father almost interrupts Peter as he's babbling on. (laughs) And the Father descends in this cloud and speaks from heaven and says, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. It's the same words that were declared at the baptism of Jesus. But with that added command on the end, those three important words, listen to him. Don't just marvel at Jesus. Listen to Jesus. But what are we called to listen to exactly? Well, in one sense, we listen to all the scriptures. It's all from God. It's all God's word. But in this context, I think... He must be calling Peter, James and John to listen to what they didn't listen to properly six days before, which was the clear teaching of Jesus on the cross. They failed to listen properly to what Jesus had said about the cross. Now, for those of you who have children, you'll probably, or you've you've had children, you'll probably recall many moments when you sit a child down When there's something you desperately want them to understand and you'll sit them down in front of you and you'll make them look you in the eye and ever so clearly you will tell them what they need to hear. But often it feels like that, doesn't it? And it just doesn't sink in. And I think that's maybe something of what Jesus must have felt here as he tries to impress upon his disciples the importance and the necessity, absolute necessity of the cross, of dying for sin in our place. Yet like so many people today, the disciples failed to listen properly, which is astonishing really, isn't it? That the God of heaven has entered this world and visibly shown us and spoken so clearly to us of the most significant event in the history of the world, the cross of Christ, yet people fail to listen. This is my son, says the father. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And you see the response of the disciples? When the Father speaks, there's the response in verse 6. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. Notice that it wasn't actually the appearance of God that made them tremble. It was the word of God that made them tremble. When they heard this, not when they saw it actually, when they heard this, they fell face down to the ground, Terrified. You see, this is the consistent pattern of Scripture. When God speaks, people tremble when the Almighty speaks. And so I wonder this morning, do we, 
When we come before God, when we approach him in his word, do we tremble in awe and reverent fear when we hear the living God speak? Because it's here in God's word that we examine his glory. It's here in God's word that we exalt his greatness. And lastly, it's here in God's word where we experience his grace. Have a look at verse 7 and verse 8. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one but Jesus. You see, God's glory is both terrifying and tender, isn't it? As Jesus comes over and these disciples have been been thrown to the floor by the majesty and the presence of the Father who speaks and Jesus comes over and he touches them and he says, get up, don't be afraid. And as they lift their faces up from the mud of the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah have now gone, right? They've disappeared into the background. And it's just Jesus. Moses and Elijah have done their job. They've pointed to the greatness and the grandeur and the glory of Jesus. And now the disciples are left alone, comforted in the presence of just Jesus Christ. But of course, that's all they need. You see, sometimes God's glory is is visible and it's big and it's striking and it's arresting. But at other times it is present in the gentle touch of a loving Savior whose grace and whose presence with us is totally sufficient for us. And that's what I think is going on in these last few verses. It's a reminder to us that the ministry of Jesus even though in many ways it may have looked pretty unspectacular, was in reality anything but. You see, as they now head back down the mountain together, Jesus asks them, or the disciples ask him, in fact, in verse 10, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? It's an understanding based on the last few verses of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 and 6 that Elijah must come before Jesus. And Jesus affirms that understanding look in verse 11. Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. You see, just as John the Baptist's ministry in the eyes of many may have looked pretty unspectacular, almost ending in failure, right? With his head on a platter at the command of Herod. So the ministry of the Lord Jesus in the eyes of many looks so unspectacular, And finishes a failure, didn't it? Hanging on a cross at the command of Pontius Pilate. But of course, both ministries in reality were hugely effective. What looked like a failure 
was in fact a glorious success. You see, John the Baptist, through his preaching and his baptism of repentance, prepared the way for Jesus. And Jesus, through his so-called failure, his death on the cross, prepared the way for millions to enter glory for all eternity. That, my friends, is anything but unspectacular. And you know what? It's the way that God continues to work today through his people in unspectacular yet glorious life-changing ways. Catherine Kirk, reading the Bible one-to-one with Becca Bolton, an older Christian lady reading the Bible with a younger Christian lady. Pretty unspectacular, right, in the eyes of the world. Most you don't even know. But it is a glorious, life-changing ministry. Roy and Letty Bowl. Roy's back today for the first time after his operation. Taking Jade, fostering her, taking her into a home centered upon the gospel. Pretty unspectacular, right? No. A glorious, life-changing ministry. Ozzy Ross. Maybe not quite as dynamic as he used to be due to age and illness. But so wonderfully faithful and persistent in prayer. Unspectacular, right? No. A glorious, life-changing ministry. And Catherine Caballet, taking a couple of minutes to draw out the bridge diagram and explain the gospel to a colleague at work. Pretty unspectacular. Back of a notepad, couple of things about Jesus. No, a glorious, life-changing, eternity-changing ministry. And I could go on, right? I could go on and on and on and on. Lots of little, seemingly unspectacular things that God will magnificently use for his glory as he builds his church. So please don't ever neglect the small seemingly unspectacular things because this is God's normative way of working. It's what we read in 1 Corinthians, isn't it, as we draw things to a close. Chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Our lives at times may look and feel pretty unspectacular. But please be encouraged that God is working in and through his people to do glorious eternity changing things. It's the way he's always worked. And it's the way he will continue to work until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And by the way, when Jesus does return a second time, it will be spectacular. It will be glorious. On his first advent, he came in humility, clothed in humanity, born in a stable in the little backwater of Bethlehem. But when the Lord Jesus Christ returns from his exalted position 
he will return with jaw-dropping glory. And that is exactly, that jaw-dropping glory is exactly what he gave his disciples a glimpse of up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he will do to us as well. If we pause for long enough to examine his glory, to exalt his greatness, and to experience his grace. So let me take just a minute now by yourself to to impress some of those things into your hearts and pause long enough to do just that.